Hello and welcome to the 56th episode of Adam Alonzi's podcast. Tonight we will be discussing the Millennium Project, the 15 global challenges, and the future. Hello, Jerome. Hello, how are you? I can't complain too much. The brutal summer is finally winding down here just a wee bit. I think it will only be about 88, 89 today. Mm -hmm. You are a big name in the futurist community. You are the head of the Millennium Project. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, the Millennium Project is a distributed think tank rather than in one spot. Uh, it has 63 nodes around the world. Uh, when the Millennium Project uses the term node, it, it means a group of individuals and institutions that connect local futurists and other experts with uh, global assessments. And then we take all this information, we fit it back to these nodes. They then put it into different languages, use it for books, training, and so forth. So we're a think tank that's um, global and participatory, uh, which is a little bit unusual. Uh, and we don't focus on just one issue or one country. Well, even though I'm in Washington, D.C., the majority of the players in the Millennium Project are in Europe and Asia. Um, so it's not on behalf of the United States or on behalf of a particular issue or a particular ideology. Uh, it's a think tank that's trying to explore what are the best things to do to make civilization's future better. So we look at very positive things and very negative things because we've got to be serious about countering the negative things as well as celebrating and promoting the positive things. And it was started back in 1996 after a three-year feasibility study um, and the feasibility study was done in cooperation with the United Nations University the Smithsonian Institution uh, the futures group and the American Council for the United Nations University uh, which at the time I was uh, the executive director um, then we began operations later in 1996 and have been producing uh, a bunch of stuff since then. One of those things is the state of the future, which outlines the 15 global challenges and where we're winning and where we're not doing so well. Right. The, the way that this evolved was that when we began, we started with a very simple blank questionnaire. <laughs> we sent out to these nodes around the world and had them give on to other futures that participated in the feasibility study and said, what is going on that's going to become a very big deal in 25 years that is either misunderstood of how it will evolve or people just don't even know what's going on and give us a reference. So you couldn't just make up stuff. You had to have some sort of reference to whatever it is. And what is it going to look like maybe in 10 years from now? And what's it going to look like maybe in 25 years? So we collected all this stuff, and it was a tremendous amount of information. So we couldn't take all that and send it back to another questionnaire because it was just too much. So we divided it into five different groups. To, we sent the economic stuff, the economists, technology stuff, the engineers, and so forth. Uh, and then we collected all this, then there were actions in there, and then we interviewed various people around the world, what should be done about all this stuff. And then those interviews and all that stuff got condensed into the 15, originally 15 issues. And um, our planning committee, which are the nodes and plus the sponsors, said, okay, at the end of the first year, this is fine, but you acted like a bunch of engineers looking for problems. What about all these wonderful opportunities out there? You didn't cover all those. So, okay. So the next one, next year, we went through the same process and ended up with 15 opportunities. Then the third year, we put them together into the 15 challenges. 
and our friends from Finland said, "Stop changing. <laughs> we like this little out this this framework. This 15 global challenges is fine as a framework, and we want to evaluate our country this way. Um, so, if you keep changing what the the items are, there's no longitudinal, you know, research going on. So we kept them uh, up until recently. I think it's a couple of years ago. We did put two decision-making items together into one." And opened up uh, a one of the challenges, uh, a new challenge for education. The reason we did that was because the advances recently in brain research and AI is going so fast and so interlinked that the that the the, the opportunity, the, the challenge was how to put all this stuff together properly into the education system because right now a lot of the teachers don't know anything about cognitive science and yet they're teaching brains not teaching kneecaps uh, so that's how we the 15 challenges got created and we update them all the time online and we put them into uh, the, the state of the future reports that are available also online and it's important to emphasize that none of the challenges take precedence over another because they are all horrendously, horribly, and terrifyingly interrelated and interwoven with one another. Yes, which has also the advantage that some, as you improve one, you can improve the others, just like your human body. You do a good job on your digestive system or your muscle system or something like that, you're helping the rest of the things. So I suppose one question someone might have, and some of my friends who are into bottom-up approaches to everything is why do we need futurists to solve issues like clean drinking water sustainable energy sources aren't those just going to come from private companies and their engineers well a lot of it can uh, that's true but some things are global in nature like uh, if if you do everything perfectly uh, in your neighborhood, uh, that's not going to turn around global climate change. Uh, we have to have some mega solutions for mega challenges as well. Also, if you come up with a good uh, approach in your backyard, why not share it with the other backyards? So we do need to have a, a large overview of the whole system so that an individual or a country or a corporation can see where do I fit in the overall picture and how is that overall picture changing and how do I then think ahead in such an environment to draw on the best that the world has to offer in terms of ideas, strategies, technologies, and so forth. So for example, making sure that a water crisis does not ignite conflict between two countries that share a river can potentially prevent World War Three. Yeah. Yeah, look at the old Nile. I mean, you've got a lot of countries along the Nile that are now just beginning their industrialization. Industrialization uses a lot of water. Uh, if all these countries along the Nile use all that water, it's going to be dry when it gets to Cairo. There's no way in the world Egypt is going to accept the Nile being dry. So if there are new approaches to making meat without growing animals, the water production and food goes way down. Uh, if we can uh, use saltwater agriculture along the coastlines of different countries, then you don't. Then you can have some of that agriculture substituted into the saltwater areas, and not use as much fresh water. Uh, if there's new approaches to desalinization through pressurization of saltwater into fresh water uh, that is developed in country X, then the country Y can use them. So, those are some some of the thoughts there. Well, I was going to segue into some of the more abstract issues the MP deals with, like gender equality, mm -hmm. organized crime. Mm -hmm. In fact, I had no idea just how much money organized crime around the world breaks in until I saw it in the state of the future. 
Yeah, this is one of the largest problems that is not being addressed uh, in the minds, at least, of, of the world. Um, it, it is one of the weak points in futures, international futures activity. You know, futures talking about economics and technology and jobs and gender rights, all kinds of stuff like that. But they tend not to touch organized crime. Uh, your audience can go to our website and they can get the, sort of the brief overviews of these things. But uh, the main idea which you're alluding to is that if you add up all the organized crime around the world, uh, it's twice the money if you add up all the military budgets around the world. All the military budgets are about $1.6 trillion, a T, trillion dollars. And we figure organized crime is between 3 to $4 trillion. And that doesn't even take into account the value of extortion. So, like, for example, if I say, hey, I want you to do three more podcasts or I'm going to blow up your studio, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, so you do these other podcasts and you don't get your studio blown up. But there's no cash trans transaction. So nothing has been, no, nothing's in the ledger. So the impact of, of uh, organized crime, in a sense, financially, uh, is twice the impact of all the militaries. This is extraordinary, and it is so insidious. People don't want to deal with it. They don't want to. They don't want to deal you know, because they're afraid of being killed. Of course. Well, there's a global strategy that a bunch of countries are now considering um, of how to uh, address this on a long-term systemic basis. Because if you do everything right in your backyard, but the other backyard doesn't your backyard is going to be affected by organized crime. So organized crime is one of those things that has to be addressed globally. It can't be just addressed by one country, which is the case with a lot of these things. Um, take the, even you mentioned the gender stuff. Uh, if, if, if your country does everything perfect on gender and another country doesn't, but it produces movies, and those movies have the stereotypes being reinforced, it still affects your country. So uh, this goes back to your earlier thing about like why do we need global futures research? Because we're in a global system, and like it or not, and we can't extricate ourselves from it. And since we're stuck in this global system, we need collective intelligence, which is something that's been gaining traction lately. I think partially because of Phil Tetlock's book on super forecasting, but you guys have been doing it a lot longer than that. Mm -hmm. That book only came out a couple years ago. The idea is that with the wisdom of the crowd, we can guess the weight of an ox hanging in the marketplace within a pound or two, mm -hmm. according to Francis Galton. So, you would say that the collective forecasting system is the glue that holds it all together. Yeah, with a caveat that we're not per se doing forecasts. Like, we're not going to say it's a 50% chance of recession or something like that. <laughs> uh, instead, we're saying here are the forces that are at work that have to be taken into account. And here's how it can go well, and here's how it can go badly, and here are some actions to consider, and here are the good points about an action and the bad points about an action. It's sort of like making an informed choice. So what is the informed part on a global basis? We put together what we think is the informed part. What are the challenges facing humanity? What is the data about those uh, challenges? How is that data changing through time? Where are we winning on these things? Where are we losing on these things? So we put this together on an online system so that if you take, for example, the challenge in organized crime or any of the 15 challenges, doesn't matter, they all have the same menu. So, for, so the one item on the menu is news. What are the best news sources to address organized crime? What are the best news sources to address the challenge of water? What are the best news, et cetera? So that's one menu option. So you can see the news feeds go into one place. So, you know, you, around the world, different sources of news. And we, we, we aggregate them into one location. So then you can search it. So you can say, all right, I'm going to search for China, water on the news. So I get the items of China on water around the world in just one location. 
then the users of the system can say, is that news item short-term or long-term significant? If it's short-term significant, just like a normal newspaper, you throw it out. If it's, if it's long-term significant, you just rip out that <laughs> article and you keep it. So we move that over to the, the second option, which is scanning. Scanning is like the long-term memory of the brain, of the global brain system. And then we look at all those scanning items the long-term and see what's the pattern. Those patterns then go to the next, next item on, on the menu, which is situation. What is the situation on water or crime or whatever? And, you know, and how you judge that. And what ought to be the situation? What ought to be our goals? And then third, what is the policies? What are the policies to address the gap between what is and what's, uh, what ought? Then we take all of that and then we put that into a report and that gets that short overviews that people can, can see. Then there's also a menu option for best websites, best books, uh, computer models and so forth. So each challenge is 15 challenges. And each challenge has a menu of 11 options. And these things are updated on an ongoing basis. And then people can comment on anything, anywhere, anytime to help build a collective intelligence. And we also have a bunch of methods in there, 37 methods to explore the future. And we also have uh, 55 research, uh, specific research projects like the future of ethics, uh, the future of work, things like that. So when I use the word collective intelligence, I mean it a little differently than it's used today. People tend to think of that the crowdsourcing as an answer to judge the weight of the meat or whatever it is. Okay, that's fine. That, that's that's a that's a crowdsourced forecast or crowdsourced answer. To me, collective intelligence is an emergent property. Like the brain emerges, the mind emerges from the brain. So the collective intelligence system, the hardware software, would be like the the physical brain of your brain, but the collective intelligence itself would be like your mind. Your mind is always growing from the interactions of information, of people, of software, of all these different things going on. Your mind, hopefully, is always evolving. So emergent, so I, I see collective intelligence as not an answer or a forecast, but an ongoing emergent property. And we need, in my humble opinion, collective emergent property intelligence for the species because the issues we're facing are species-wide and we should address them as a species, as a family. But like any family over the kitchen table, yet talk about it. <laughs> what are all the options? So we're not making predictions, per se, on behalf of other people who can use that stuff for predictions. And we also cite other people's predictions. But what we're doing is the conversation around the, the dinner table, so to speak, on behalf of humanity. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. However, it is a little more difficult to understand than making a prediction, flipping yes. a coin. <laughs> yes, yes. That's yeah. okay. I think most things that are truly worthwhile are hard to get a handle on. Well, I'm certainly happy to take bets, <laughs> but, I <don't> do that <laughs> but I don't do that professionally. <laughs> well, it also gives the MP... And the final section of the state of the future involves pretty far out possible trajectories of the mm -hmm. fairly distant future. And given the rate of progress, 10, 20 years down the line is really anyone's guess. And some people guess more correctly than others. <laughs> so if you take the good guessers and put them together, <laughs> you may end up with something that's useful. Well, sure. There are some people who see massive technological unemployment bringing some kind of dystopian oligarchical society. Others see it as this liberating force that might give us a paradise on Earth. That's right. And that's why we produce alternative scenarios to make the point that we don't want to turn our back on the people who say it's going to be a mess. We want to understand the mess and prevent it. But at the same time, the people who understand the mess don't necessarily understand the opportunities. So then we do the positive scenario as well so that people can see what's possible. And then we do a mixed one uh, where there's sort of good and bad in there. And it's uh, it acts as a gymnasium for the mind. At the mm. very least, in mm. good fiction, 
Mm -hmm. Brave New World in 1984, even if they might have been a little bit unrealistic, at least 1984 mm -hmm. was, mm -hmm. they got people to think about what might happen. Yes. And as a futurist starting in the early 70s, 1984 was a looming serious deal that we all took seriously, sort of like <laughs> World War III we took seriously. Uh, and there were efforts of people breaking up computer systems into individualization and into decentralization. And that's an awful lot about the PC and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so there were deliberate attempts to try to avoid 1984 and futurists and computer people that I was aware of in the 70s would sit down and think, oh, how are we going to do this? What is a star network? How do you decentralize this? And how do you make sure it's not all in one spot? And uh, so at the time, I remember saying, we may not have Big Brother, but we're going to have a whole lot of little cousins. But I'd rather have a whole lot of little cousins than one Big Brother. And we avoided 1984. More or less. More or less. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We have little cousins all over the place. <laughs> and I gave up on privacy a long time ago. And that's, and that's a topic for another day, but that also carries with it some good and some bad. And that's one of the reasons why blockchain, or as I like to call it, distributed ledger technology, because... Mm -hmm. As I said in a previous podcast, blockchain, the very term, it makes me a bit nauseous because it's become such a buzzword. Mm -hmm. In any case, transparency yeah. also breeds honesty, yeah. and it tends to encourage moral behavior. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm always hesitant to say this, but I feel an obligation. Uh, as I mentioned, I sort of gave up on privacy during the Cold War friends with Herman Kahn, who was one of the top independent strategists on the U.S. side. So the idea of having private conversations <laughs> wasn't taken too seriously. But what it did, it, it, it has affected me. And I think, I don't, as you can tell, I don't like saying this, but I think it made me a better person in the following way. If I was going to country X and I was on the phone talking to somebody else about country X, I wouldn't go out of my way to say something bad about a country X or something stupid or derogatory or insulting. <laughs> because I want to get out of the airplane and I don't want someone that heard the damn stuff to say, okay, your passport's invalid, give it to me, and you're in jail. <laughs> uh, now, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating this a little bit, but I think that your listeners can appreciate the idea that if there's, if you, it's just like you go into a store, you're not going to shoplift if there's a camera on you. If, if, if your words are being checked out, you want to be uh, as honorable, as even-handed, as, 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 as forthright as possible. And I think it made me a slightly nicer person than I would have been otherwise, and, and, and definitely more diplomatic than I would have been otherwise. So that's, a, that's one positive side of the surrender of privacy. Obviously, of course, the other one is that if you have data, you can make better in artificial intelligence systems than if you don't have data. Well, I hate to go back to philosophy 101 or ethics 101, but virtue is a habit. And even if it's by force, eventually you learn to become virtuous, yep. at least according to Aristotle. I mean, but he yep. also thought women had more teeth than men, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't get everything right, but he got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, but that, that idea of the habit, that, that I would be an example of what he was talking about, because you know, over the years it became a habit. One of the questions that I'm sure is on a lot of people's minds, especially given the events of the last two years, is how can we preserve democracy around the world? Free press is a key one. It's uh, the only institution that is named in our own U.S. Constitution as being an important pillar of democracy. Um, however, when you had a small number uh, dealing with the press, there was, in the, let's say, in the early 60s or so, or 70s, uh, there was a, a bottleneck uh, it was, in a sense, a bit of quality control, as well as, of course, getting rid of deviant views, but nevertheless quality control to some degree. 
But now, when we have an open spigot for everything, uh, it's like anything goes, and information pollution is like industrial pollution. Now we've got information pollution like crazy, and we're not sure what to believe. And this is a problem because it was uh, Benjamin Franklin, who I would point out was probably the first American futurist. Benjamin Franklin uh, said that um, an informed, knowledgeable, informed public was the cornerstone of democracy. So as everyone, it's a cliche now, we're all got tons of information, but we're just not very smart about a lot of stuff. We have so much information, so much information pollution, we can't easily separate the signal from the noise. Um, and that is a very, very, very disturbing trend. I wrote about information warfare in a book called uh, Future Mind about 30 years ago. Then the Cold War was on. You took out the word Soviet Union and put in the word Russia. The chapter on defense reads like the present tense, unfortunately. Uh, information warfare is a mug, very, very large problem uh, that um, we are not systematically dealing with that I can tell at the moment. Um, I know that the United States used to have the fairness doctrine in place, which was repealed before I was born. I don't know if other countries have had analogous acts, what has happened to them, but it seems that balanced coverage to some extent has to be enforced from above, because there doesn't seem to be any incentive to do that. Well, yeah, uh, the thing on balanced cover is sort of interesting. Let's say that you have 99% of the world says, and, and this, or the scientists, let's say 99% says climate change is upon us. And 1% says, well, there's too much uncertainty. I can't claim that. So if you have balance, does balance mean you have the one person with one of the other 99 and giving equal time to the two views. Is that balanced? Um, and this is one of the things that we do often in, in the news, because the news, the news it's a one-way system. In other words, I'm CBS and I broadcast to you. You tend to hold an audience by conflict or contrast or drama uh, as distinct from interactive systems like the social networks to hold people by common interests and shared views and shared values and so forth. Those are two quite different dynamics. And the, the problem with uh, one-way news is that you naturally look for the conflict. You look for the pain. You look for the excitement. You look for whatever. And the trouble with the interactive news is that is it, it's, it's extremes. You know, you know the, the, the more you are wild, you're attracting those wild people, so to speak, uh, to your own silo of information. I, I don't have a clear answer to this other than to talk about it with everybody. We are, we are if, if societies are the individual written large, as your philosopher friend Socrates in, in the Republic, Plato once said, if that's true, then if society are different, grows up in different maturations around the world differently. We might be said that we, you know, in the early days of civilization, you had dictators because the people didn't know what the hell to do. The dictators told them what to do. Then as people got more aware of things, more educated, yeah, you have revolutions and a little elbow pushing here and there. They're like teenagers, you know, it's confronting authority. And eventually people sort of mature and grow up and take long-term responsibilities for what they're doing. And I think we're in that transition today. Uh, I don't think we're quite there yet. I think we're sort of like teenagers beginning to, maybe like college students, right? we're beginning a little mature, but we're not quite grown up yet. Um, but we have to have a sense that honesty matters, and we don't have that. Right now we have the sense that if I can manipulate you, that's good business. You know, if I can do a marketing thing that just, you know, manipulates and, and spins and so forth and gets the cars sold, that's good business. Uh, I'd like to somehow challenge that. Uh, there are some people that believe that the Quakers made a lot of money in England, and and the, the king had to pay it back. So that's how we got Pennsylvania, I think, maybe Delaware. Uh, but the Quakers had the idea that business was to solve a problem, 
and you had to be honest in, in, in solving that problem. We've lost that value, unfortunately. Um, so I, I think we just have to really have a serious conversation with ourselves about all this. I don't see an easy solution. I mean, yes, you can have monitoring, as we started to talk about, and that has an influence, but that's just the technocrat part of the answer. There's also got to be the consciousness part of the answer as well. Which is partially where education comes in. Yep. And pedagogy plays such a tremendous role in shaping people's values. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure if it's to blame for the breakdown of civility and across the aisle conversations in the United States, but maybe it's played some role. I, I Of course, it's like most complex issues. It's hard to pinpoint what went wrong, but what is clear is something did. Yes. Well, if you if it's true that only 73,000 votes or so spread over three states, the uh, college made the difference. And if it's true that uh, hundreds and thousands of bots and hit millions and millions of people, it's hard to believe that that wouldn't be worth 73,000 votes. Uh, if it is, uh, and I've not seen any sociological study on what the impact was, and I'm sort of surprised no sociologist has taken this on. I mean, people say, oh, yeah, Russia did X. What was the impact? I don't know. You know, the, the people have been saying that for now, almost two years. You, you would think that somebody would say, well, let's take a look. What is the impact? And it's hard for me to believe that there wasn't 73,000 votes worth of impact out of all that sort of stuff. But if there was, then that has told the world that, yes, if you do information warfare on your opponent, there will be sanctions, there will be outcries, there will be all of this, but you get the president you want. If Armenia and Azerbaijan go at it, or if the Palestinians and Israel go at it, etc., 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 we're going to flood the world with all kinds of information pollution. And one of the consequences of this is that people, they don't trust the information systems, the information they get. That's behavioral paranoia. It's not biological paranoia, but it Behaviorally, we will act like paranoid people, <coughs> and that's got to be stopped. And I and I, I think we just got to call it call it as it is. Information warfare is engaged today, and we are not taking it seriously. If a submarine came into New York City and blew up a building, we would take it seriously. Well, far more damage has been done in one submarine and one building, in my judgment. It is funny what people pay attention to and what they don't, but that's been observed by more than one commentator, more afraid of sharks than getting in a car accident, mm -hmm. more afraid of terrorism than mm -hmm. dying of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But even though... Americans and people around the world are disproportionately afraid of terrorist threats. The emergence of new technologies is making it possible for a lone wolf, maybe acting out of an ideology, maybe just because they're angry with the world, to cause a lot of damage. Yeah. Yeah, that is, you know, is a study, uh, we, we coined a term about 12 years ago in a environmental security report uh, forecast about the idea of a single individual becoming massively destructive. So we use the term CMAD because, you know, when you speak military, you got to have abbreviations. So CMAD was single individual massively destructive. And then how do we prevent CMADs? Um, and one of the ones that we worry about the most is the use of uh, synthetic biology creating a microorganism. We could have delayed properties, and I don't want to go into details, but um, we had, what was it, a Spanish flu of 50 million people, 25, 50 million people died around 1900. Uh, the plague, uh, a, a larger amount proportion. We could have some really massive thing, because now, today, we've got all these airplanes running around and ships uh, cleaning out their <laughs> insides and different harbors. So the ability to get a, a microorganism around the world is far more efficient today than it was in the past. Now, that's a deadly one. That's a problem. And so we think there's three approaches to prevent this. 
so we have our own defense triad, just like we had the nuclear time with the defense triad. Now here's a fun triad for CMAG. The first is technical means. How do you monitor molecules in public space? And that's fancy stuff, classified stuff, not my business. That's the, that's the state that should do that. Second is how do we apply what we know about human health, human development, cognitive science, and all of this, so we produce a lot more healthy people as a greater percentage of population than in the past. That doesn't solve the whole problem, but it reduces the problem. And how do we integrate that into public health systems, into public, public school systems? And so forth? We should be doing this anyway, because we'd like to have a healthy, mature civilization. But it's a national security issue as well. And the third is the one that the Millennium Project would like to do. We haven't got a sponsor for this yet, but we'd like to uh, study, because we have these nodes all around the world, we cut through institutions and different cultures. We're in a position to assess and, and an ongoing back and forth of how can the family and the community take on more responsibility for preventing the single lone wolf terrorist massively destructive in the future. I mean, right now we got some problems, but the future ones could be a good deal, more, more of a threat. So we have to begin today to begin to, how do we take on responsibility? And when people say, well, that's an impossible task, I go, not necessarily, because we have distributed the responsibility for virus protection on a computer. You know, you have to update your virus software, you have to get it, you have to install it, you have to do your stuff with firewall. We've distributed this around, around people. I, I think we've got to distribute somehow the responsibility that if somebody lets out on a bus station and some little kid is acting like a spoiled brat doing some stuff, rather than me like ignoring and saying, well, that's not my kid. Yeah, but that kid could grow up and become the CMAT. <laughs> you know, you stop saying, hey, what's the problem here? But I'm not, I don't mean simplistic about this, but how the family and community gets, because during the Cold War, the family and the community had no role other than paying taxes. But on this future stuff, the front line is the family and the community. Um, at this point, the stakes are rather very soon. The stakes will just be too high to continue ignoring the stuff. I know the school shooting is tragic enough. Losing a couple billion people is unacceptable. Right. That's right. And yet, this is, I Bill Gates has mentioned it before, but he was alluding more to something that just happened rather than something that was meticulously planned, something with a long latency period, something with all sorts of resistances. Mm -hmm. But on the overall, the general public seems to be oblivious to this possibility. Well, we're getting fat and happy. <laughs> um, you know, uh, what, 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 who was it, the, the macro historians that say one of the reasons it's Rome and all the rest of these civilizations fell. This be, you know, to oversimplify, one of the key ones is they just got fat and happy. It was too easy. I mean, it's the roads are working. You know, the waters and turn on the water, the tap, and the water comes out. Yes, you're somewhere in the Midwest, but most of the most of the physical things of life are being taken care of. Uh, we've got social security systems. I mean, the retiring people that they have more wealth than by far their grandparents did as a generalization. Uh, you know, we're, as I pointed out in the state of the future, we're winning more than we're losing. But of course, where we're losing is deadly serious, as you pointed out a couple of them already. But I think that's part of the thing is we're fat and happy. Uh, don't bother me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to watch my TV show. I'm going to play on social media and then I'm going to go to sleep. Leave me alone. I mean, comparatively speaking, people in this day and age around the world are wealthier than their ancestors. On the other hand, we're also very fearful. Wealth inequality is a real problem mm -hmm. that doesn't seem to have a solution in sight. So I wouldn't say that the average person, even in the United States, is completely docile. Maybe a mixture of uh, passivity with crippling fear over how they might pay for a medical treatment if it becomes necessary. Yep. Yep. 
Well, I think it's going to be inevitable that we're going to have to have a universal health care. I don't know how you're going to get around that. Um, you know, the pressure is going to build, the pressure is going to build. Uh, and I just don't see how that's avoided. And when, the trouble is you've got all these insurance companies and they're saying like, what did I do wrong, man? I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and you're going to wipe me out? Um, so that's, 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 I, I have some sympathy there. Uh, the same thing with universal basic income. Uh, as you may know, we've been asking countries to put together cash flow projections that are considering these ideas. And so far, I haven't seen the cash flow projections, so I haven't seen the evidence of financial sustainability. But I think we should do these financial sustainability studies and then have a serious conversation because there is a major problem of the concentration of wealth concentration of resources, the concentration of privilege, uh, and, and leaving, what is it, 20% of the U.S. is you know, below the poverty line. That's ridiculous. And returning to what you said near the beginning of the conversation, educators and policymakers frequently don't think in terms of the brain. One of the studies, and a small one about hundred men, homeless men, who were living under a bridge in England on universal basic income showed that it was a resounding success. It was small, but I think it illustrates what it does to a person's sense of self-worth, to their psychological well-being when they have a safety net. Yeah. Yeah, and if it's universal, then there's no shame in taking it. Uh, also, um, we have a we had a social contract that said if you went to school, did okay, you got a job, you did okay, we'll give you a retirement benefit, so you're so you'll be okay. Well, the demographics of that's not working out, as the Europeans will <laughs> quickly tell you. The aging population makes the financial commitment rate much different than the past. So we're going to have to think about some new ways of organizing ourselves. And universal basic income is one of the options, terribly misunderstood by a lot of people. When I first started studying it, we did these future scenarios and future working technology, as you know. And the process of it, I had to take a look at all these things. And I was sort of against it to begin with. But the more I got into it, the more I realized, do we want to be a society that says we had this social contract before, and now... You know, this AI is going to knock you out of your job or robotics or whatever. You did everything right, perfectly fine, but you're thrown out in the street. Do we want to have a society that throws people out in the street when they behave according to the rules of society? No. So then we have to change the rules of society somehow. So we got to have some sort of basic thing so you're not thrown in the street. You don't make much, but you're not thrown in the street, which gives people a freedom of self-actualization. Like, for example, um, I'm relatively comfortable, so... You know, I, I can sort of do what I want. And so a lot of the stuff in the Millennium Project that sometimes doesn't get funded, we do anyway, that if, if there wasn't this sort of basic universal income sense of security that I have, uh, I might not have done it. Because how often do your listeners hear the idea, well, I wrote this proposal, it's turned down, so now I'm not doing it. Well, if you had a basic, basic universal income, then people could collaborate. didn't have to write proposals and get rejected or accepted or not. They can just sort of do it, as the, the sports folks say. Just do it. There's a lot of things we can just do if you knew that your basic needs are met, as Maslow would say, and you got your self-actualization needs met by social media and so forth. Then eventually you do self-actualization. So what happens when you've got a technologically augmented society becoming more intelligent and more knowledgeable before and self-actualizing and not panicking about whether they're going to get sick or not? That could be a very nice civilization, but we've got to prove financial sustainability, which has not been done yet. Yeah, better people create better civilizations. Who would have thought it? <laughs> yep. It's overlooked, but I don't want to rip on policymakers when I think of the issue of AI security, for instance, there are a lot of folks, engineers who work in AI, who dismiss it immediately because to them it is 
linear algebra and some fairly advanced probability theory, and that's all it is. But in the very long run, it could acquire something like consciousness. Surely it has to be endowed with values, and we have to think about what those values are going to be and how the software might interpret them down the road. Yeah, that's uh, the, the referred to the utility problem. And it is gigantic. Uh, and a lot of people are, are, as you know, are working on it full time right now. But for the, your listeners that may not be aware of it, imagine you have an AI driving your car. And you have in their AI that young people are more valuable than old people if somebody's got to die in an accident. Because we have a value that they've got more of a life to live or something. Okay. Now, what happens if the car is in an accident situation and there are, there's one young person, if you go to the left, is going to die, but there's 10 old people to the right is going to die. What is the decision of the car in that situation? Uh, th these are massively complex and difficult things to work out, and it's, it's way beyond my ability to cover in a short period of time here. One thing I would want to leave with your, your audience is it's useful to make a distinction between three kinds of AI, which get confused. Narrow AI is what we have today with driving the car, diagnosing cancer, and so forth. So the AI that drives a car cannot diagnose cancer and vice versa. That's narrow. It's still machine learning. You know, it's, it's, it's still taking in data and learning and getting better, but it's within this, this category. General AI is more or less like us in the sense that it can adapt to a situation, find new information around the world, Re rewrite his program based upon all kinds of feedback systems so it gets smarter all the time. The third one is general intelligence that sets its own goals. That's what science fiction is talking about, and that's what Elon Musk is worrying about. We're not there yet, but the reason we should take it seriously today is we may get to general intelligence in 10 or 15 years or so, and we don't know how long it'll take to go from general intelligence to superintelligence. It might be almost instantaneously developing the sort of consciousness that you're referring to, or it may never happen. The general intelligence may never happen either, by the way. None of these are guaranteed. But we have to, as honorable futures, we have to look at these possibilities, which goes back to the business about predicting and forecasting. We're not predicting this will happen. We're saying it can happen, it might happen, and we got to figure out what to do about it so we don't back into it uh, your eyes closed and all of a sudden end up in the science fiction movies. Yeah, I don't foresee digital computers giving rise to anything like consciousness, but there are some senior folks in the AI community who do, anyone's guess. But still, it's sort of like brushing your teeth. You don't brush your teeth today because you're going to get a bunch of cavities tomorrow. Right. Total prevention is a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if it involves all of us being converted into paper clips. <laughs> well, you know, um, back to your point just before, it's true that birds fly, and it's true that airplanes fly. They both fly, but they're not the same thing <laughs> at all. So the way... Um, the way if consciousness evolves, it may not be consciousness like yours and mine. But if it is responding to feedback and news and all kinds of other behavioral properties of consciousness, then I think the behavioral properties that one would list could probably very well be done in, in, in general intelligence. Um, but we don't have to say it's the same thing. Does it have a soul? Well, it's, I don't know. I mean, it depends whether or not there's a God in the universe or something. I don't know. I don't know these sort of things. But that it is possible for an, a, a superintelligence to evolve beyond our understanding, to me, is almost inevitable. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't predict, as I'm saying, but I mean, it's, it's a... It's, it's it's a it's one can write a story, a projection, a a, a a roadmap on how that's possible, and if it is, if things would begin to happen that we don't understand why they happen, um, 
And I remember some time ago, I asked a NASA guy with little robotic things, little triangle things, with like, like dice you throw on the floor and it reassembles. And they put it in a system one time. And I said, did it ever reassemble in a way that you couldn't figure out? And he said, yes. He said, we went back through the algorithm. You couldn't figure out how it is. He said, yes, we couldn't figure it out. And that was like 15 or more years ago. I would err, if I'm going to err on the, on the side of, is it likely, I would err on that side and say, yeah, I think something like consciousness beyond our understanding will occur. Not the same as your consciousness and my consciousness, but behaviorally, yes. The question a lot of people have is, we'll have these positions for people who are educated, who may have some innate cognitive advantages. So what do we do with the disadvantaged who, for one reason or another, maybe even air pollution, according to the latest news, their brains just aren't quite up to snuff? Mm. Yes, yeah, I saw that. Well, uh, the example I like to give is the old witch doctor in Malawi, Africa, uh, who has a nephew who speaks English, he's going to local school. And they can pay the equivalent of about two or so dollars to go to the main city where there's a cyber cafe. And pay another couple of dollars uh, and um, get a uh, access to the cyber uh, to a computer, uh, take out a website, take a photograph of the witch doctor and say witchcraft, witch doctor consultancy five euros uh, or something like that and uh, click here and then in 20 in with one one week you'll have a live consultancy or something like that and then make a deal with the cyber cafe owner to say look i don't have a paypal account i don't have a this i don't have a that but i'll split it with you you know all the stuff will come in here they have an email here and at the end of the week um when i come back and i, I address whatever it is that they want to do uh, and they when they they click they receive the, the, the funds. Uh, we we're watching this computer screen together, and we split it. So you give out of your cash register half that money to me. Now I think that there's a fair number of people in the world that would be curious to see what a witch doctor would tell them. So let's say only a hundred people in the world, certainly more, but let's say only a hundred people respond, and so that's from say five euros or five dollars. And that's five hundred dollars. Well, that's pretty good return on investment for like four or five dollars worth of transportation and time stuff. And I say, if an illiterate witch doctor can make a return on investment like that, what can the rest of the pop? We just haven't the rest of the population do. We haven't challenged ourselves to say, how can I make a living doing things I'm curious and doing? We haven't taught people to think this way. You know, I mean, we've got half the world uh, using Internet, and the other half have access to it, like the witch doctor. <laughs> so basically, everybody's got access to it, one way or another. Uh, but an awful lot of people could say, all right, I am uh, a, um, uh, a fisherman in Lake Malawi. Uh, anybody want to... Uh, hear our song, our music, see a video of what we're doing, or like, well, you know, there's, you know, some people are curious about Africa. They might want to have a personal conversation with somebody. They might want to have a video. There's just tons of stuff that people can do. They just haven't, haven't thought about. What are you doing today that somebody's interested in as well? You don't need any. Only a handful of people putting a hand, small amount of money in that they can give you a fair amount of income over the time. So for those people who are not uh, part of the AI uh, audit world uh, doing the sophisticated stuff, uh, the rest of the folks can come up with how they can make a living because they can get access markets worldwide. In the past, you, they couldn't, but you know, so you, you, couldn't, you couldn't do it. I was talking about hundreds of years ago, but now you can do it today. You find people, they find you, and, they can, and because you've got electronic transfers and so forth, you can receive income. Yeah, and I am surprised, for instance, technologies like Bitcoin, how quickly they've been adopted by countries we consider second or third world. Mm -hmm. Back in 2012, Kenya had 
7 million Bitcoin wallets, approximately. I assume that figure has grown substantially. Hmm. I know they had electronic fund market wallets. Didn't know about the Bitcoin number. Because uh, in, in, in Kenya, as you know, you can go to a store, give somebody five watch or whatever the currency is, and then they load up your telephone with that. And then you go take a taxi cab and you five dollars and you get it off your telephone. That I'm aware of. I didn't know that there was that many Bitcoin users in, in Kenya. Some of them might be multi-wallet users, but in any case, it's it's a lot. Yeah. So there's yeah, a, a democratizing effect of technology, and I'd imagine people from poorer countries have a greater incentive to use the internet for productive purposes and ends, whereas you know, in the West, I think it's mostly cat pictures and pornography at this point. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was involved in putting in, getting countries to agree to put in what's called packet switching as wide internet so cheap in the developing countries and some of these dictatorships. And I remember people saying things like, well, you're a nice young man, but um, computer communications has nothing to do with development. And anyway, I've got a fax machine, so I don't need this stuff. Believe it or not, I've heard this for 15 years from people. Uh, and now, of course, I'm hearing the one that says, uh, well, I don't need collective intelligence in the world. My God, I've got the Internet. I've got, I, I can Google anything I want to. What do I need a collective intelligence system for? So fortunately, I got uh, an immunization with the early packet switching versus uh, uh, fax machines, so I'm not too depressed about it. <laughs> it just takes a long time. So these ideas of people not well-educated uh, in a advancing technological world, not being able to make it, I think they can, some of these ideas, but it's just going to take a lot of time to actually convince people that this is possible. And they get it in the education system. I know of no elementary teacher in the world teaching people in the classrooms is how can you connect with people around the world that is interested in you other than social media <laughs> that's a different different, different different approach right so that's just one more way in which education has to change what it's teaching people now one of the things we hope that uh, education systems around the world will accept the notion that increasing intelligence should be an objective of education. Uh, we have the objective of citizenship, we have the objective of knowledge, but we don't have the objective of increasing brain functioning. Or we have it with physical, you can have physical education to increase your bodily function, but not your brain function. And, and as I mentioned earlier, there's so much going on in in learning how the brain works and artificial intelligence and the combinations thereof, that education's got to get serious about that. And if it does, then you can start to say, hey, we want to improve the brain functioning of our students. Um, so that would be one, one change I'd really like to see in education. The teachers would have to learn, how do you improve the intelligence of a classroom? We're learning how to teach them knowledge. We're learning how to make them behave. But how do we teach them their brain to actually wire and be healthier. Well, there aren't many surefire ways out there just yet, but there are some interesting pathways. And one that is frequently cited was an experiment on students in South America with chess, and supposedly it improved their IQ scores. As a rule of thumb, transferability is kind of taboo in psychology. And if we learn one task, we just become better at that task. But thousands of years of accumulated wisdom say concentration is something that you can develop and it carries over to everything else. Hmm. That's a very good point. On our uh, Global Futures Intelligence System, uh, Global Challenge 9 on Education, under Situation, under the section on Policies to Address the Gap, 
we list actually 10 ways to improve intelligence. Uh, I click through them real quickly if you'd like. Oh. Okay. Oh, I have all my windows closed <laughs> at the moment. Ah, that's right. I, I can I can read them out loud to you. You can, you can look through it. It's under it's under uh, challenge nine situation policies address gap. The first one is responding to feedback. Right now we keep teaching people get feedback, get feedback. Well, if you just get feedback, that's going to make you dumb because you got information overload. But you got to respond to feedback. This came from the National Institute of Health, uh, the Brain Research. I said ask how to get more intelligence. So respond to feedback, even if you reject the stuff, even if you throw stuff out, you're causing the neural wiring. To, 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 to be more complex by responding to feedback. So don't just get feedback, respond to it. Secondly, consistency of love, but diversity of environment. This is like we put these little dangling things over cribs so little children get their brain stimulated. But they leave it in the same place, move it somewhere, or change the colors on it. Because if the, the brain doesn't get new stimulation, it's saying, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point, you know? But if it's a, no consistency of love, it's afraid to do the exploration. So it has to be a combination of consistency of love, diversity of environment. The third one is nutrition. Everybody knows about that one. The fourth one is reasoning. And a lot of people understand and accept that one. The fifth one is a placebo effect. Telling people they're dumb might make them a little dumber than they would have been otherwise. And telling them they're smart might make them a little smarter than they would have been otherwise. I know that happened to me because I took an IQ test when I was in elementary school. Didn't do well because I couldn't read worth a damn. And then later, my parents took me to an oral IQ test. And I went the other extreme. Well, then I started to act differently in the classroom. I started to end up tutoring kids within a short period of time. So I know the placebo effect can be very powerful on, on intelligence. And that one's free of charge. But if it's if, if people say uh, placebo is worth 10% in health, medical health, um, so that's two ways. You can make you sicker or this way. So that's a 20% spread. Well, that relative to the brain functioning and brain intelligence is gigantic. I'm not believing in this. It can be that much of an impact, but it can be a little impact. All these things added together can make a big deal. Um, the sixth one is contact with intelligent people. You know, you take a, a tuning fork, you hit it, take another tuning fork, get near it, and it picks up the vibe, right? We all know that like, parents will say, play with this kid versus that kid. Why? Because there's an impact of kids having on each other so but we can't all be with Einstein and such geniuses all the time but we can with virtual reality we can with computer augmentation systems we can actually have a contact with intelligent people people who are smarter than we are and have interactions with software and so forth that can have an impact on our brain wiring and functioning uh, software gaming systems we you know Obviously, you can overdo it. You need salt in your food, but you don't want to have a whole lot of salt. You'll be dead. Same with the computer gaming. It does make you smarter, but you can't overdo it. Uh, neuropharmacology. Brain is a chemical system. That's a sensitive area, but they, obviously that can make some enhancements there. Memes in classrooms. You know, intelligence is sexy. A lot of women don't uh, want to act like they're too intelligent because they'll scare away the guy. So that makes a lot of people dumber than they would have been otherwise. So we need some memes to, about intelligence. And the and the tenth is uh, low-stress, high-stimulating environments. Different set, different music, different fragrances, different colors, things like that. It's actually still like spring better. So each one of these ten are short-term. They don't last. But then again, neither does oxygen last. I mean, we keep breathing. So if we kept doing some of these ten, it should have a long-term impact on, on brain development. And educators should know these ten points. Definitely. And... My video games appear to improve cognitive function and older mm -hmm. adults too. Mm -hmm. So there's some good evidence for a lot of them. But I think if you asked most academic psychologists, they would try their best to sidestep the issue entirely because <laughs> it's still not yeah. it's still not clear exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but see, that's the point of declaring it a goal. Once a country says, uh, or a school district, for that matter, says increasing intelligence is an objective of education, then they got to scramble to figure out how do you do that? What is the research around the world? How do we know? What What do we know? How do How do, how do What do teacher? Do, can we get teacher trainings? Do the colleges to teach us how? Just like landing a man on the moon. We did not, I knew Bob Bondler. He didn't know how to land a man on the moon. He didn't know they're going to disappear under the dust. He didn't have a three stage rocket at the time. 
you know, there's tons of stuff we didn't know about landing a man on the moon. We know more about how to increase train functioning today than we know how to land a man on the moon. But we declared it as a goal, and we marshaled resources and did it. You should do the same thing with this. I absolutely agree. We just have to figure out how to market it to the people and the psychologists. And it, it's very similar to the issue of getting aging classified as a disease. Hmm. There are some valid objections from professional pathologists, and then there are others that are more just knee-jerk, visceral objections to, well, you know, everybody ages. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of my one of my pet uh, hobby horses is if we're going to do synthetic biology, which obviously we're already beginning to do. Um, why don't we make a little organism, unlike the organisms in our digestive tract that we are dependent upon for digesting our food? Uh, why don't we make a little organism that can digest the plaque in our brain? Because an awful lot of the effects of aging have to do with plaque buildup in the brain. Well, that's one thing we might be able to knock out. Yeah, and drugs like pyrocetum, which, as far as drugs go, is about as safe as they come, are known to remove lipofuscin from different mm. tissues. Ooh, I'd like to learn that one. I don't know that one myself. It is prescribed somewhat commonly in Europe, not so mm. much here. And so, unfortunately, most of the people who take it usually obtain it from a company that has imported it from China or India. Mm. Yeah, and that's always an eyebrow twitcher because, uh, as you may know, uh, one study showed that about 25% of pharmaceuticals purchased online are bogus. That almost sounds low to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's 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 even more nervous than hello. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's nervous enough to be twenty five, and and in Africa, it's also high. Even the ones that are actually in the stores, you know, in, in the hospital stores and so forth. Yeah, the whole this is where organized crime comes in again. It it it, it rears its ugly head in many places, and it's it, in pharmaceuticals. It's involved too. I was talking to a friend of mine. The Ukraine, she mentioned the popularity of homeopathic treatments, the exorbitant prices that manufacturers charge for those. Mm. There's uh, a lot of people that need a lot of educating. Yeah, yeah, including me, and I'm learning. I'm learning all day long, reading all day long, and I'm still not keeping up with everything. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and the audio, I'm guessing, is pristine. I've always been pretty pleased with what comes out of Hangouts. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss? Uh, no, I just, the main thing is if your listeners just uh, do a Google on Millennium with two N's and two L's hyphen project.org, they'll uh, find our main website, which is a gateway to a whole lot of the stuff we just talked about. Oh, yes, I'm going to add pretty ads with background music ah. to the beginning and the end of this podcast. Have a good day. Enjoy. And you too. And don't say anything nasty about Country X. <laughs> or if you do, don't go to Country X. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.